Welcome to They Came From Outer Space, a radio program where we talk to filmmakers and buffs about their favorite sci-fi film and how it relates to their own work and today's wild world. I'm filmmaker Cameron Kitt, also known on WRIR as DJ Lilas, and I'm here today with Madeline Olnick to discuss the 1982 cult classic, Liquid Sky. You wanted to know who and what I am? Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to introduce you and then I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about why you chose this movie, but I'm very lucky to have you on this uh, podcast. For those of you who are not aware, Madeline Olnek is a writer, director, and producer known for her 2018 film Wild Nights with Emily, starring Molly Shannon, famous for being the first ever queer portrayal of Emily Dickinson on screen in 2018. (laughs) Uh, Madeline I know, Gomes. it's shocking, isn't it? It's just so funny. Like, when did she die? 1880s, you know? She died in 1886. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, she finally got it. <laughs> yeah. That movie, is, that movie is so amazing, by the way. I'm Thank you so much. So delighted. We'll talk more about it. But if you, if you want to watch this hilarious and entertaining and educational film, it's on Hulu. Yeah, um, streaming on Hulu. So, so Molly Shannon was actually your friend and maybe roommate in NYU, and you guys kind of bonded. Oh no, she right? wasn't. She wasn't my roommate. Um, she, I directed her in a comedy show where she first created her character of Mary Catherine Gallagher. That's right. I don't know. And the she, roommate thing. she just, des- she mm-hmm. describes me as the midwife to that moment. <laughs> to that very famous and Catholic school character. character. I mean. It was, she was like a force of nature in this comedy show. It was, people at NYU were like, they'd never seen anything like it. It was so great. I mean, I say only this as an as someone who was an, also an audience member. I'm not bragging about my own direction, mm-hmm. but I am quite good at bringing together talented people. <laughs> so. I like the idea of the director as the midwife, right? Yes. Yes. That you're helping deliver something that's already inside of them. Yeah, it's their own creation. That character was her creation. Mm-hmm. I just pushed her to give birth to it. Mm-hmm. And birth can be painful, right? Yes, birth it can, can be painful. Yeah, can be painful. But something good comes now. Um, all right, so Madeline got her start as a playwright, wrote and directed over 24 original plays in downtown New York City. She's received dozens of awards, fellowships, including the Jerome Foundation. She's also the co-author of Practical Handbook for the Actor, which is required reading at many universities. And, and, and we just, and I just want to add to that, we just um, came out with a audio version of that book. Oh, it's number one, number one in stagecraft on Amazon and new releases. And Rose Byrne, who is in uh, Bridesmaids and in um, Spy with Melissa McCarthy, she plays the villain. Um, she reads the book. No. Yes, I know. That's how I feel. No, it's unbelievable that she reads the book because the, this acting technique she studied and it meant a lot to her. So. Wow, she, she does the audio book recording. That's gonna feel good that it can. It's continuing to still be a really strong piece for people in film. It, and it is getting updated. And yeah, I mean, for for actors and 
because it's an acting technique and it's the technique that I use to guide myself when I'm creating things. So it's, it's a very um, helpful thing to, it's a, just a very helpful and easily accessible technique. It's not a mystery or anything. It's very spelled out one, two, three and all that. So practical handbook for the actor, look it up on Amazon or Audible or library, but probably buy it. Um, I'm definitely going to go look it up. And I mean, I'm a big audiobook fan. I personally love to chug books that way and walk around. So I would love to listen to Rose Byrne. Oh my God. Techniques. Yeah. Um, she's, she's got awesome. such a beautiful voice. She does. Um, yeah. But the reason that Madeline's here is because she directed codependent lesbian space alien seek same, which played at Sundance in 2011, based on the play of the same name that Madeline produced in the late nineties. Um, and played to a packed house on Valentine's day this year at Nighthawk cinema. Um, I was there for probably the same reason many other people were there, is that I immediately saw the name of the movie and was like, yep, that's exactly, <laughs> that's perfect. That's exactly right. Um, and it was just so cool to see, like, there was really good energy there. And um, yeah, that was that's the reason why we're here. So, Madeline, thank you. Oh, well, I was thrilled to have that awesome screening. And um, there was not an empty seat there. I mean, it was great and everyone was seeing it for the first time and I was totally thrilled, so. Uh, the person I sat next to, Aaron's actually my friend now and we go see movies together because of your movie. So like- I Oh, wow. Yeah. See? Uh, I, just... And we laughed so hard at so many parts of your film and it was just great like to have that on Valentine's Day was really special. Um, but it's a low budget sci-fi about the lesbian experience in New York City that I have not experienced from, I guess, like the, what it was like, pre-Tinder, kind of? Yes, yes, <laughs> so pre call it? yeah. Pre-Hinge, pre-Her, all of the apps. Um, <laughs> yes. And we're here to talk about this utterly insane movie called Liquid Sky that I definitely feel like had a lot of impression on the film that you made. One of the notable differences being the rating, R versus PG. Um, why did you... <laughs> Yeah, that's to me, that's like the big difference. It's like one's PG, one's R. And uh, mm -hmm. one's dealing with, one's dealing with um, like doing hard drugs and the other's dealing with like going on cute dates, right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, it's very- Well, I mean, both... I, yeah. we should we should say a little bit about the movie Liquid Sky and because yes. it's, it's um, so this was a movie that I stumbled across at the Waverly Cinema. Um, it just ran there forever. It was on, you know, on Sixth Avenue and like West Fourth, and um, it was directed by uh, this Russian filmmaker named Slava Sukerman. Slava Sukerman, mm -hmm. and it was um, co-written by the lead actress Anne Carlyle who plays these two parts, Margaret and Jimmy. She plays, the, you. some people watch the movie, don't understand she's playing both of those roles. Um, and Nina Karova, who was a producer also in the film. And the film very much has, even though Slava is also one of the um, co-authors of the screenplay, there is, you you know you're watching a movie written by women and it's such, 
that point of view in 1982 in 1983 was so shocking you know this movie came out at the same time i want to say when was sex lies and videotape um i'm not even sure but like think about that movie seen as like telling some kind of indie truth it just glorified the male gaze where basically this guy just secretly taped people and he was women like invaded their privacy and he was seen as some kind of hero and that was <laughs> you know what i mean that's how by yeah. the way oh 89 yeah. i'm sorry and it's, well, he, and it's got a 96 percent on rush yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's how the 80s were honestly a, they were a great decade for music a horrible decade for film. Um, you had the 70s, which was like this golden age of film, all these wonderful stories. The women's movement was going on. Um, then there was this incredible backlash when Reagan came to power. And um, if you watch the great show, uh, Mrs. America, and you see it's about the fall of the ERA, how the ERA never got ratified. The Republicans going into the 80s, they didn't think they could come out against it. But not only did they defeat it, there was this horrible backlash against women because of that. Basically, women were recognized as a totally powerless group of people um, when that was defeated. And the other thing that was going on, of course, was the AIDS crisis. Um, and the when the AIDS crisis started, it basically... We after this the seventies, you know, there was like the village people. There was all this uh, people were coming out um, in the seventies, and then AIDS came along, and it gave people the justification to hate gay people, to discriminate against gay people. Gay people were fired from their jobs. Um, gay men who were waiters would be fired because the people would think like, oh, they're going to put AIDS in the food. You know, like it was a really horrible time. And this movie, I feel, does come out of that totally misogynist, gay-hating, woman-hating time, but tells the, tells the story with, there's a reality to it. Um, and so, so what happens, just so everyone knows, and this is a sci-fi podcast, and I'm sure people are used to all kinds of weird descriptions, but basically there are these aliens who come to Earth who are looking for heroin um, and instead end up finding that the opiates that are released in people's brains when they have an orgasm are just as good. And so... There's this one woman, again, the Margaret character, who's a fashion model, who is um, basically being abused by all these people. Um, and people are taking advantage of her sexually. But when they do that, um, the aliens like throw this like piece, this, this crystal basically into their brain and kill them. <laughs> So she's everyone she has sex with dies. Um, and it's it's so interesting because she's really they don't avoid the misogyny. I mean, I wouldn't say go as far to say trigger warning for this movie, even though there are. I would. OK, <laughs> you would. All right. All right. All right. Oh, God. There's I mean, like I... four or five graphic rape scenes. 
No, they uh, are, but they are not. I mean, I feel like they are. This is an ultra low budget movie, and because, um, because it's an ultra low budget movie, some of I feel like those scenes where those guys are trying to jump her, I don't buy entirely. I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's yeah. not even like it's not even like watching a tele television episode of, of like a of a of a TV show with a rape on it where right. it's terrifying. Like you're watching a little bit that like in that in a way, I thought that was actually a good choice how they did it. Yeah. And they have her fighting these people the whole time. She's yeah. not It's not it. like a fun, sexy rape like we like. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's the thing that's actually the thing that's more triggering is when it's like, wait, why is this why is this lit in such a way that it's right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, they're very and she, upsetting. And she it's she and she gets her revenge on each and every person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that deserves to be said. It's kind of like, I mean, so I, as a person in the audience watching it, I really appreciated, you know, it's set among a bunch of heroin and drug users in the fashion industry on the Lower East Side in New York in the early 80s. Like, mm -hmm. it's not a group of um, pleasant humanitarians. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. These are people who mm -hmm. are shallow. These are people who are shallow and um, usurious and empty. Um, and uh, did and, but there's humor in this movie like you wouldn't even believe. Um, there are scenes where you're going along and then they just have something like it'll be in the dialogue at completely absurd naturalistic line and you you i mean i remember watching in theater just like l like laughing out like my laugh ringing through the theater because i felt like i i couldn't believe how many outrageous things they had happen in this movie yeah it fits a lot in and you actually imagine you did ex what I, I was you know i normally do read a little summary and say, hey, we're going to spoil the film, but that enjoy that it can increase your enjoyment. But you summarized the film perfectly. And kind right, of already we don't give, the we, question. We right? don't, well, we don't give away, we don't give away how this, how this all happens. But yeah, I mean, and, and I mean, I guess you're, it's fair to say trigger warning. I see what you're saying, sure, but it's sure. not, but do you see what I'm saying where it's like, it's not a terrifying, there's something they're presenting this idea of, I mean, this woman is kind of shut down. Um, and the other part that really got me at the end when she has her, her revelatory monologue, and let me see if I have, I tried to write down something where she says, um, she says, um, you, want, you wanted to know where I'm from. I'm from, from Connecticut. Connecticut. <laughs> yeah, so now I'm from Connecticut. So I was dying, laughing, you know. Um, and she's True, like, though. Oh, and Carlisle is from Connecticut. Yes. Maple and they show these pictures of her when she's younger. And it's her. You know it's her. And you totally see her in that world. And she says, I'm from Connecticut, Mayflower stock. I was told my prince would come and he would be a lawyer. And it's something like, and we would barbecue on weekends. And I mean, it was just, it was just, um, 
I, I think she talks about, you know, women being told, be nice, be nice, be nice, like, or, or something like that, that, that the reality in this or, and what they, what they address and what they have her say, like for people who consider certain modern TV stuff edgy, when you watch a movie like this, you see how people are just skimming the surface yes. in those TV shows. Yes. I mean, this movie really takes stuff on. It's still and, shocking 40 years later. It's yeah. still shocking to me. And that's like why independent cinema is important. There was nobody holding this. There was no producers coming in saying, no, we can't show that. Right. And well, if there were, I can't imagine what they cut. It was a very small team of like some Soviets, but the, the movie is still shocking and it's very bold faced what it's talking about. It's just, it's like, it's Anne Carlyle able to finally talk bluntly about the culture being around cocaine and heroin and being in clubs, like things that were going on in her real life. And I want to get to that symbolism too, that we're talking about with like the many different layers that this movie goes towards and how aliens in New York um, seeking orgasms one way or another is relevant to both our films that we're going to talk about. Um, so yes, I'm, gonna, least... I'm just with that with that new um, assignment. I'm going to press the button for my next cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to go ahead and read the an overview. Okay. Released in 1982, Liquid Sky is a sexual sci-fi thriller produced and directed by Slava Sukerman, who moved to the U.S. from Israel in the late 70s. So he's Russian-born. The plot has been described as a primitive. Yeah, yeah, and he and he also just to make this clear, my understanding is that he learned filmmaking in Moscow. He was Russian. He wasn't mm -hmm. Israeli. Mm -hmm. I think it's just interesting because, like, politically right now, it's it's interesting to like talk about a Russian filmmaker. But this is one of the only movies that's like an independent Russian film produced in the U.S. There's right, very right. few. So it's well, just there's this there's this great as as you probably know this great history of well two, two things i want to comment on um a great history of filmmaking in russia um around the time or before the russian uh revolution uh, after that through i don't even know if it was like through world war ii russian filmmakers couldn't get their hands on any footage any like they didn't have access to a lot of um, equipment and film. So they had to plan it and do stuff the theoretically. And so they developed this really great aesthetic because they had to spend all their time planning on how they would actually mm. shoot something once they had the, that's a story I was told, who knows, maybe it's a made up story, but <laughs> there are great visual, there are great visual visuals. Like if you watch the movie, man with a camera, yeah, man with like the movie camera. Yeah. Yep. it's just that kind of like, and I guess what was really surprising to me is like, when you think of an indie film, you think of something either with like brilliant handheld operators that cuts something together organic and rich in that way. Or you think of a big budget film as having a great camera and everything. But this is a movie that was low budget. I mean, for that time, it was in 1982, 83, it was very hard to make a low budget movie then. There wasn't that same community that exists now around making a low budget movie. And that they made this and that the, the creativity, it's almost a two hour film and you're never 
bored. You're never tired. You're never like, oh, much, how much left? Like it goes along. Like they have this weird synth soundtrack. I'm sorry. I've totally derailed we have to what talk you were to, saying. We have to all talk we were saying. Oh, okay. Yes. But all we were, you were, you were giving the good history. Go back to the history. But I just wanted to correct you because he's not Israeli. He's Russian. Right. People will list him as being Israeli because he moved to Israel after growing up. But he's a Russian born, Russian trained filmmaker. Um, right. So good Which correction. Which is important. Yeah. yeah. And I think there were some other Russians involved. Yeah. There's a Russian. Oh, but I yeah. mean. Yeah, like, no, but I I also it's it. annoying. Like I lost my, I was up for an independent spirit award with Emily and I lost to a bunch of Russians. It really annoyed me. But anyway, mm-hmm. go on. <laughs> I wonder if that would happen this year. It, yeah, it wouldn't happen this year. Yeah. Hmm. So anyway, so this is how it's described. It's a pre- primitive pre-computer acid trip dealing with a miniature plate-sized saucer Landing in New York See, City. See, but this is so weird. I, I'm sorry. I would, I disagree with that description. I'm reading it I from. Mean, I, it's from Superman's description on um, IMDb. This is what someone well, wrote about him. Be, no, but I mean, but that's wrong. It's not primitive. I, I don't find. I know. It primitive. I was thinking about that. It's a pr- primitive pre-computer acid trip. It's interesting. Primitive, I think, must be a stand-in for indie in this phrase, right? Like, the well, fact I that mean, no, like, yeah. I mean, it's almost production. like they they knew what the budget was and decided it was primitive. I mean, or that it's you have not to primitive. put it down somehow because the acting or the fact that they only get one take for certain things. No, but I mean, I didn't have that experience of. I mean, the, and it also, felt advanced. You mean? Well, I mean, also when you're playing a bunch of vapid heroin addicts. <laughs> like someone staring and taking a pause. Like I do assume that to be part of the reality they're capturing. They're that's capturing. a really good point. Yeah. But I mean, so, but that's weird. I wouldn't, I just wouldn't describe it there. And I also, I don't know if this makes any difference, but the, the version I saw, and you can, I don't, we don't want to say where you can see it for free, but you can see it for free. Mm-hmm. Um, because we don't want this version to be t- taken away. No. But you can you can find it, and it's good quality. It's so the quality is so good. I thought the quality was even better than what I saw at the Waverly, if that's possible. But um, it's beautifully restored, and mm-hmm. and it's never you never feel like you're watching something cheap. It's totally interesting. Well, yeah, there's a quote that I was thinking about that I really want to read from Anne Carlyle, an interview I did. But the big takeaway is euphoria seeking aliens on the hunt for heroin and orgasms, just as you said. But the way that I describe this movie is like the day the earth stood still, but make it horny. That's kind of the way I was describing this, right? Like, it's like there's this idea of the invasion, the alien invasion or these aliens that are seeking things. But it's really more of a it's really more of a structure to talk about the lifestyle that Anne was going through and all the things that she was dealing yeah, with gender yeah. and androgyny. And this was just a little bit of the structure that she needed to make that work to like, oh, it's a sci-fi thriller and you're able to do whatever you want. Because the right. sci-fi element is is beautiful. Like the there are these, the little kind of like, it reminded me of the, the uh, music video for Sledgehammer when the men get kind of zoiped out of existence. Do you know the, like the little moments of... Um, stop motion and the sound effect it was like inherently very 80s but also just like so striking and amazing mm-hmm. so like those things were all they're all uh, there to fulfill the desires of the protagonist to talk about really talk about gender and and um like sexual orientation and, and also just like the crisis that they were going through so i love well I it's, love it's that. i mean the other thing that is interesting and deserves discussion especially on this podcast 
is the idea at um i talked about this that night at nighthawk in brooklyn which is b movie sci-fi the sci-fi b movies uh, in the 50s in the united states um had this two things that were common one the aliens were bald usually bald and also they spoke in a flat monotone and that spoke to the fears of of the United States during the Cold War that the Russians were going to invade us and make us all the same, that communism was going to come here and we were going to be turned, you know, flattened and have the flat affect and the the bald heads were fear of a nuclear holocaust. Um, so here we have this movie, sci-fi movie, from a Russian point of view where the aliens don't even exist as figures right what they're about mm-hmm. what they're we don't even see them they're just here to get the to get the um the heroin or the opiates in the brain and it's really about the drama of of um this woman being so hated um in this world that she'd rather like suicidally go away with the aliens because the aliens are the first people who have protected her in her mind. Yeah. Uh, there's a really good interview. There's an interview just last year with Slava Sukerman, a very long one, by the way. It's two hours long. It's as long as the movie. Really? Where he, and it has very what's, few what's views. What's he up to? Uh, I'm, it, from what it looks well, like, he's just hanging out being like a grandpa reading books. He didn't talk as much about his current work. It was very theoretical. But he says, like psychologically, the films, the sci-fi films that Americans made since the 70s showed their hope that the solutions to their problems were going to come from the outside, that they were going to come from the sky. And he blames that a little bit on, um, you know, they, uh, close encounters, right? This kind of idea yeah. of the things, the help is going to come from above, the American zeitgeist. And he, he considers this movie the sci-fi Cinderella. He keeps bringing up Cinderella, which I, I didn't see when I watched it, right? But for him, he quote, the irony is that Margaret finds her Prince Charming in a shapeless form. And like you said, gets, spoiler alert, zapped or kind of, it, it's a little bit unclear, right? What happens? No, no, no. I know what I could tell. Okay. All right, just, all right. They just, but, we, but it's true. We don't want to totally get, but I can see where he sees that. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, it's very, I mean, again, this is a nihilistic group of people. This was... You know, AIDS was breaking around then. We're just about to break. 82, I think it was 84 when, 84, 85, when Rock Hudson um, movie star got AIDS and people were like, oh, this is real now, you Mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was this feeling among the people downtown that their lives didn't matter. So why should we take care of them ourselves? Mm-hmm. Like, why should we take care of our own lives when it's clear we don't matter? Like, that's what's part of that. It's, you know, a queer world. And what's interesting to me is that the the Margaret character, Margaret plays both Margaret and Jimmy, and Jimmy hates Margaret. Mm-hmm. Like, and they all hate her and they call her dyke and like... Everyone hates Margaret. Everyone slaps and hurts Margaret constantly yeah, throughout the movie. Yeah. Like... Everyone who interacts with this beautiful woman, this androgynous, they call it like very David Bowie-esque woman, yeah. who's like being very vulnerable in the film, um, who's being told by everyone constantly 
what to do and what to feel, right? It's very, yeah, it's very painful. But, you know, I this movie is beautifully contrasted with codependent lesbian space alien seek scene, which is delightful, heartfelt, heartwarming. Like, <laughs> I, I walked away feeling can... buoyant and good, right? A movie that has, mm. uh, if I can spoil it by saying, can I say that it has a happy ending? Or we yes, it has a happy ending. It doesn't like, spoil it. A, a movie that has a happy ending that's about lesbians. Like, oh my gosh, like, yay. Like, thank you so much. Mm. Um, and also is like about the New York experience. You know, when before we started recording, you said something that really stood out to you was the script. So talk about what in this script for Liquid Sky is so impressive to you and then also what the script writing was like for this movie and maybe adapting it to screen the well i don't i don't know anything about their process in writing it except to except i noticed the credits had two women uh which made a lot of sense to me because i mean it was to these two women and the filmmaker and one of them was that actress so she obviously had a huge, you know, when you're acting in something that you've written, you have an, you, you're creating the character that you're playing. Um, and she had an indelible, like that movie without her just couldn't even really work, you know? And, um, um, I real I noted the, just the, the bizarre, there was just bizarre humor that was it would do things like i mean this isn't even anything with one of the main characters but um there's this woman who at one point there's this german scientist who's tra tracking the aliens and he wants to watch out her window so he has to like have these basically flirt with this woman so that he can he can uh, point his telescope at this building next door where he sees the spaceship is and all this stuff. And she's like, oh, well, let's have dinner. And and so he has to go along with this. And so she calls up and orders Chinese food and she orders five different shrimp dishes. Every dish she orders is a shrimp dish. And as the order's going on, you're like, are she really going <laughs> to, there's shrimp? And it's just the two of them and all these shrimp dishes. It's just this totally weird moment that's just, I don't even know why I'm honing in on that moment, but there's all these weird pieces of humor or they'll set up some reality in a scene and then someone will have some totally off the wall line at the end. Well, and yes. I just, but the shrimp, the, the thing this stood out to me so, so distinctly is he explains by pointing the telescope to the saucer that that's aliens. And she says, Oh wait, so there's aliens that are the size of a jumbo shrimp. And that got me. I was like, oh, 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 right, 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 right. What if they're jumbo shrimp size? Like, so I felt like maybe that was like to set up. Oh, a sense totally. Of, like, no, no, no. That totally, yeah, yeah. No, that was totally. That was. Um, it was. And I. I also I thought of like the idea of trying to imagine this script like in a workshop being workshops <laughs> like whatever do you know what i mean like this kind of originality just would would have been stamped out of it you know like What's... it's just the, the voice is so strong and the the world and what also they were able to achieve also low budget like i said you're never strained you're never like uh like uh you know what i mean 
Mm -hmm. You're never watching a movie pretending to be something else. It's totally compelling how they've, how they've told this story and um, the acting. I, I, it's funny. It's all so funny. Um, But I want to talk about scripting because like with your idea for your movie, Uh for, for this movie, you know, we talked about how Anne Carlyle first, first, first space aliens, aliens, space aliens. Yeah. yeah, we're we're kind of like this is my my essay is right. I'm comparing and contrasting. You I know, see. Anne Carlyle really based a lot of this movie on her life. You know, the apartment they shot in was her apartment, and then later she adopted she adapted it into a novel. Right, so there's a lot of her in it. How much of Codependent Lesbian Space Alien had Lisa Haas or um, uh, Jackie Monahan or Susan Ziegler? Like, how much of it? How much of those women? came through into the script because you'd originally written it as a play, right? Like, did you adapt any of it for them? Um, Well, Jackie's part was adapted for her. The other parts stayed the same from, I mean, Jack, so there are three aliens and Jackie Monaghan, who's a very funny stand-up comedian, made her part we decided she would be the alien that's just slept around by means of avoiding real intimacy and so that was very much her um coming up with bits around that um but the other parts were were written um so those were those weren't um it was a different process than it is if you have an actor if you're making something with an actor, does does that make sense? I mean, and even the thing is, is that I don't feel like liquid sky was improvised. Hmm. Um, It feels like a script to me. Yeah. It's too, it's too clean. You know, it's too, and you're not, and it feels like a script in a good way. It doesn't feel like, Oh, they're reciting lines. It feels like a well-written script, but um, there was stuff about, the, the parts of me or the parts that I was interested in trying to capture um, were those feelings of loneliness and alienation mm-hmm. that happen, especially when you first come out, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really wanted to capture that feeling. So that was the part of me that I drew, drew upon. And the, the character, our main character, Jane, is so beautifully played by Lisa. Like, you're so one of the most lovable characters. Like, very shy, very lonely. Um, but like, the, just to summarize the plot, this is about uh, aliens that are sent to Earth because of green, a kind of like a global warming issue caused by feelings on their home planet, and so they have to be sent to Earth to have their hearts broken in order not right. to pollute their own planet. So, like, right, Earth is where belie- you go. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's believed it's believed that if on their planet that if you love too much the feelings leave your body rise up into the sky and widen the hole in the ozone. Right. So they're sent to earth to have their hearts broken so that they can love no more. Right. Which and where else do you go but, you know, yes. New York. Um Exactly. And and it's just like that that plot alone has so much similarity I feel like to Liquid Sky but for a very different reason, right? It's not about alienation for them there you know i guess you could say that that film's about alienation but um in a way about like finding love and community in spite of it all and it's sweet and it's shot in black and white except for the ending which Mm -hmm. becomes color which is kind of cool 
Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, like it, it just has to me, there's a line from the movie that I feel like kind of over overlaps. Like you, you could make a quiz, like which line is for which movie. And the question is, <laughs> the question is, do aliens have orgasms? Question mark. And I was like, oh, that could work for either one of these movies, right? Like, uh, which one are we doing? But there, there's this idea of like the, the low budget sci-fi in, in that it's really easy to get taken. How do I say this? It's really easy to get sucked into your budget and the constraints of the budget and going too big with the budget. But something that both of these movies do really well is um, not get sucked into the whole sci-fi budget side and focus on the characters and the acting. And that's what makes the movie good, right? The sci-fi elements are really fun, but they're not sucking away your entire budget in such a way that they're ruining the movie. They're, they're creating the kind of structure, the introduction and introduction, you know? So for me, that was what was really interesting was to see that there is kind of a similarity in the opening, you know, craft comes down, which is the same thing you get in the, the you know, 1940s and 50s movies. Well, I agree. Um, that was, that was important for me because when you think of a genre film, there are stock conventions of the genre. Yeah. And one of them is that there's always something landing at the beginning. There's mm -hmm. always a newscast. Um, mm -hmm. there's usually, you know, someone tracking the alien. So like I, part of, it's interesting because when I was, when I made the play and the movie, I actually didn't think about Liquid Sky. I thought about different movies. I thought about the movie Starman with Jeff Bridges mm -hmm. and like a romantic mm -hmm. comedy and that kind of thing. But, um, I feel, I do feel like both of our, what both of our movies have in common is the willingness to put really weird ideas front and center and just put reality behind them. And also sometimes having a low budget can be an asset. Like when we were seeing those apartments in Liquid Sky, those were real New York City one was a really grungy apart. People really did just, live like that. You know, like when and you we, see these, and, you know that they're real. You can tell. Yeah, they're real. It's not some production designer's dressed up mm -hmm. reality. When mm -hmm. she goes in that bathroom and gets to the her heroin works to shoot up. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's all of that is like a disgusting <laughs> New York City bathroom. Like it's really. But it's like a good document, right? Like you're yeah, documenting. Ex exactly. Exactly. And that's part of one of the advantages of being in a low budget film. You can have a small footprint. Maybe normally they wouldn't be allowed in such a place, you know, like a big movie set might not have been able to get that building. Mm -hmm. um, they wouldn't be able to st have stopped traffic for you know, however long. So seeing these places, it's, there's less, there's definitely less outside, less of outside New York City and Liquid Sky than there is in, in Codependent Lesbian Space Only Seek Same. Hmm. Um, yeah. But they do have some really beautiful interstitial shots in Liquid Sky where they have all this traffic just reflected off of all these glass sided buildings. Um, and it's, was, there's, there, there are some, there's some really striking cinematography of it. Oh when Space gosh. Aliens, there's more, there's more of like tracking around the village. And so I wanted people to see, you know, and to seeing Jane walk around and being out in the world. And 
it kind of served as proof of the premise that these bald aliens could walk around the village and no one would say anything like it, it supported the premise of, of my movie. Cause you see them out in public with real people and no and one's people like, do not even look, don't even, yeah, look, don't even look jaded yeah. New Yorkers have seen everything. It's normal. It's common dress. Yeah. I, I thought that was so funny too, because I, well, in a way it's like, it's beautiful to what you, what you're saying is like, you're able to get things in an intimate way that you wouldn't get with 30 people in a room. Um, there's a quote from Ann Carlisle, you know, it, quote, it was low budget. And if there was any money, it went into making the production look good. It was shot in 35 millimeter and it looked like a, this little jewel. Oh, I love that. Yes. She, yes. 35, that 35 millimeter. It's yeah. It's just, amazing. it just does. I mean, and you have, so we worked really long hours in uncomfortable conditions. It was always too hot. And a lot of times I only got one take. That's hard to do. I was always worried that I wasn't getting it. And we did what we could with what we had. So Madeline, talk about that with codependent, you know, that idea of like, we only get one take and doing what you can with what you have, where there those, I'm sure there were some of those moments, right? Um, I always push it. I, I, I mean, for me, it's interesting. It's almost what you just described is almost the reverse. <laughs> okay. Okay. Cause you weren't shooting on 35 millimeter and all well, the budget was going to production I, and all those things, right? All the, no, all the budget uh, or rather I try to set up everything to go to the acting, mm. everything. And what that means is as many takes as we need. I mean, it means I shoot on digital because that's the cheapest medium. And we do many, many takes because um, you kind of build, you get a chance to build the performance layer by layer. Uh, and so I don't shoot in a high format for that reason. Um, because I feel that with comedy and with, um, with a low budget film, once you're a low budget film, once you're in that world of low budget, you better have really, really good performances and a really interesting and really interesting comedy or moments in the script. And if I took the approach of I'm putting my whole budget into the format, I couldn't, you can't have both. You have to choose. And most filmmakers I know because they're filmmakers, they're filmmakers because they love film and they love the formats. And for whatever reason, they're able to attract those multi-million dollar producers. <laughs> so I guess like they get everything, but that's the ideal. Sure. That's the ideal. But I choose the opposite. However, their, their story was different in that because there was such a visual aspect in terms of the colors and the, the way that the um, aliens were only represented in terms of the infrared of what they were looking for. They themselves weren't represented, but how they were seeing the brains of people on heroin was represented mm -hmm. over and over and it needs to be represented differently. And, you know, so there's all this use of color in that film and my film, of course, is black and white, but um, there's all <laughs> yeah, this. There's a lot of reverse, isn't there? But that, that philosophy you just described was literally the opposite of what, like never in a, you know. You would never do one take and be like, we got it. It's well. Yeah, I would never. I mean, I've been in, I have been in a few positions. Sure. There's sometimes there's that day and something happens, but 
I mean, it's why I am universally people are like, oh, is it a gender thing? Your issues with cinematographers? No, I'm universally by all genders. It's a non-binary thing for cinematographers just to hate me because I'm, I really care about the acting and the performances and the comedy and the timing and, and the other stuff, because you're limited, something has to get short shrift. And for me, it's, those things, which is, it's just heresy in the in the world of filmmaking. I think it's to, very to common that. low budget to, for the for the DP and the director to be have like the biggest. I, I always sometimes I'll think of it as like McClellan and Lincoln, right? Like Mc, mm -hmm. Lincoln's like, please go out onto the battlefield. And McClellan's like, no, that's like what I think about is like mm -hmm. the, sort of the DP and the directors mm -hmm. like pushback. It's like the general has to, you know, there's somebody's got to go back and forth. But I I think that's really funny that that's like very different because for me when she says that right it looked like a little jewel that's it her does. being humble because this is one of the most visually striking movies i've ever seen in my life wow, wow. and i just yeah. like it just so like what's so interesting to me is like this movie is 1982 so many things came after so that effect you were just talking about there's this kind of color color layered effect that i can't really describe the only way i could think of it was predator and predator came out five years later and all I could think was this had to have been an influence or I know that there was something to do with like this was an effect that could be done on computers that was new so it was cool to show alien scanning but Predator did the exact same thing it showed the aliens viewpoint through this weird this weird effect and then the visual effects in this movie are stunning the like, there's kind of like this 2001 style bubbling action that's going on the sound effects there are really amazing I mean what kind of <laughs> what kind of special effects did you guys have to do for codependent lesbian space aliens? Ours were cheesy. Yeah, they were like, they weren't, um, they're not something anyone would put on their resume. They were purposefully cheesy. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, our, our spaceship was like two pie tins and, you know, it's, they, you can't really compare the right, it's cute though like i think to me yeah. it's like it was it's done in such a way that like it's delightful so there's almost no effects from my what i remember right there's yeah like yeah very few effects at all and that's what i think makes it work is like you can tell you have this background in the play and when i heard your talk at nighthawk it was like in the play apparently like there's people like somebody would run around holding the spaceship yes, on right? a stick. Like, yeah. yeah so that's that's the origin story this movie maybe could work as a play, but to me, it's like the cinematography is one of the standouts of this film's quality. So it's like it's one of those every shot of painting movies. Oh, I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The I mean, face it's paint, really. Yeah. Yeah. Everything, the layers of everything. And I mean, there was that interesting line where she says, you know, wh why is, you know, what you're wearing is a costume, too. You know, talking about that aesthetic. Um, it's, it's, it's so good. And it's also, you know, in the performance artist world and, um, I just, I, it's, it's really so enjoyable and you should, I think we were talking about how it really should be watched with a group of friends. You shouldn't mm -hmm. watch this alone at your house, mm -hmm. um, in order to really appreciate it and appreciate the comedy in it. Mm -hmm. um, you need to watch it with a group of people. The the fact that this takes place in and around 
clubs, you know, I think like back to what you're saying about having a small crew, there's a couple, there's a couple nightclub scenes where there's, it actually is just filled up with patrons. So like the people dancing are the people dancing, right? There's not a lot of extras as far as I can tell, but the, no, no, no. I felt like, I felt like they, they did really well with their extras. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't think it was the people at the club. I think those were, those were quite a few extras and those extras put quite a lot of time into their outfits. There are, when they work, yeah. Yeah. And so there's these, some of these like shots of the people who are in full makeup and costume that never have speaking parts, but I have, they're like these iconic screenshots, like these images of this, like, I don't know what the kind of fashion zeitgeist was at the time, but the amount of face paint and the use of like stark lines is something I'm starting to see coming back on things like TikTok, like the heavy use of colored paint around mm-hmm. the eyes and on mm-hmm. the face has started to really come back. And it's just really amazing to see this, like the body as a work of art in a way that we've mm-hmm. completely stopped doing, I guess, since then, right? Like, where was this the look, you know, in, in the early 80s? Well, um, I, th- I think of, um, there was that, as it, you've read in reviews, the whole David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust thing obviously has an influence here. And there was wild things people were doing with hair then there was um i mean it was called what was it called it was it called um 80s new wave like that whole like automaton thing and then there was like really old school stuff people would do but people would shave their heads in weird ways and have the hair sticking up or hair sticking all over you know um even her I was marveling at the character Margaret's hairdo. I was like, how is she getting, how does that stay aloft in that way? <laughs> there um, was a lot of aerodynamic super wizardry <laughs> that happened in the eighties with hair. And yeah, Margaret, I, Margaret really owns it. There's, there's yeah. the scene where her hair is just kind of straight sticking out and it's like, she's hungover, but her hair is perfect. Um, this movie is so, there's just so much I want to talk about with this. Um, but that's, but those are some, I really appreciated that as someone who is always just begging people to be extras and you just get anyone in there and you're lucky what they wear. I really, the care that was um, that having those people have those singles. I just love seeing them in those outfits. That's another thing that I felt like some people were wearing their outfits that they have gone out in. Mm-hmm. Um, That's it. Yeah, there's like pride in those standalone yeah. singles. And they're just, I mean, that was definitely not the work of the those were people. And they were, but at the same time, they didn't call attention to themselves as like, oh, that person dressed themselves up. It didn't call attention to itself in that way. You just felt like you were watching a human exhibit. Yeah, and it, it was like, this is part of the reason why this is a movie that you should watch with your friends and all get dressed up to watch together. Oh, that's so funny. That's so funny. Like that's, this is a thing where like you should take the time and care. And I found the quote, like there's two different times where they talk about the costume. Madeline is, is being criticized for her outfits constantly and criticized for dressing up and spending time. This girl takes you two just, hours. You to just get said, ready. you just said Madeline instead of Margaret. No one ever criticizes my outfits. Everyone only compliments them. But anyway, go on. <laughs> Margaret, um, you're wearing what they want from you. And and she's 
she pushes back and says, you know, well, at least when men wore suits, they knew it was a costume. You're wearing jeans and a shirt and kind of calling out this idea of like classist yuppie identity outfits and the, the, the fact that wearing something bizarre was an act of defiance like her, yes. her and also yeah. her gender expression because the fact that she played Jimmy you brought this up a couple times was based on the fact that she would go out um in male dress would, would was like practicing androgynous before the word non-binary was very common was I would consider non-binary would go on no 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 I mean I mean it wasn't not even not common I mean you know because I'm just saying this because some people don't know this history. Um, aside from the fact that there were um, non-binary people in all kinds of indigenous, you know, in like in America, there were like 150 Native American um, tribes that did not have just two genders. Mm-hmm. Like, but then there wasn't, there was this idea of, they would say just say people are ACDC or like it was sort of put together with being queer. Punk. But there was also it was interesting because there was also this idea because it was so homophobic. There was more um, stuff like there was more androgyny because the idea that someone could be queer was stamped out so much that things came out more in fashion than they did in language. Um, so like fashion was this outlet to expressing different aspects of gender that you weren't mm-hmm. allowed to acknowledge as existing in in the world because clothes were not language consider you know what I mean because they weren't so it was I mean because it was such a homophobic time so there weren't people no there was no non-binary the words non-binary didn't um no one would have used that term back then at all. Um, And, but it was um, the word androgynous was common. Um, And um, that idea of, I mean, what that she captures how hated women were in the fashion world um, too, like, and which is still true today, you know, how women are, treated and used in the world of fashion um mm-hmm. i'm sorry i just totally derailed what you're no, saying but, but that's so like no like, but it's interesting and this is here's here's something that's interesting relating it to you know ghostbusters was in the 80s i don't know if anyone has brought that on your show as an example of sci-fi no i guess i guess it is a sci-fi film yeah but, we haven't talked but about i mean the giant woman who's walking at the at the end in the city is like this she has like total masculine qualities yeah like and to me it was very that's very much an 80s like the women had the shoulder pads and everything and the men were had more of their feminine like all in a society that was like gay people don't exist. It was, that was so interesting to me. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that, that, but when you see that giant monster in Goldbusters, like she definitely seems like, you know, a giant queer woman. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like who they kill, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, you could do it. I would love to do, if anyone's listening to this and wants to come on and do a queer like reading of Ghostbusters yeah, <laughs> on podcast, yeah. 
no, I mean, so, so that's why I find Liquid Sky less triggering than Ghostbusters because <laughs> the original Ghostbusters, because in Liquid Sky, they're kind of like, this is, this is the world. We're not going to sugarcoat mm-hmm. it. This is what's ha- This yeah. is reality. This is what's happening. Here's this woman who's been so abused. I just, and it doesn't seem, you know, sometimes someone tells a story where they're like, is it, is it abusive towards women or is it about characters who are abusive towards women? You know, like that whole thing where they try to excuse something like, is it misogynist or is it about misogynist characters? Or is it revealing but, the misogyny yeah. inherent? <laughs> but, uh, but I feel, I do feel like this movie, be, I mean, because the writer is playing that character, she really captures we go through it with her and we experience things with her and she ultimately you know does settle scores um she's not a victim you know and she um it's fascinating it's it's fascinating because she ends up she has a clear eye on what the world is like and she's for a movie wife. that's just that seems on a surface like it's just about like this insane logline, right? That it's about heroin seeking, orgasm seeking aliens. It has so many themes and layers. Like Slava in one of his interviews was saying, I want movies with multiple themes. And he has, he, he aims to make movies with three layers of, of, you know, value. And of course there's always more. There were so many layers of, of meaning and thematic kind of core to this. That was so shocking to me when I'm going back and like looking at like, of course, HIV was coming out to me like living as an androgynous person. There's four or five other themes, the idea of making it, the American dream. I wrote the Harlequin. I wrote all these things down. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, like he's dealing with rape. He's dealing with queer culture. He's dealing really heavily with addiction, like really in your face, dealing with how not cute addiction can be. I mean, there's just so much to dissect here. So Madeline, would you would you be willing to stay on just a little longer and dissect? Sure, sure. Let Let me just tell my my writing partner. (laughs) Second, just just a few Um, minutes extra. Um, Okay, sure, sure, sure. Of course. Wait, let me just say, still on podcast. Hold on. (laughs) Um, Okay, sorry. Go ahead. It's fine. Yeah. So, so, uh, gosh. So that theme, the theme of addiction, is something that's really painful to watch right like the idea of like he's really straightforward dealing with heroin and and like the epidemic that i assume was running through the city i mean but i also it also seemed to me pretty clear that the addiction the need for the addiction and drugs was driven by the fact that these people knew they were different oops you're frozen did Mm. i lose you no i'm just i'm just soaking that in that's uh yeah i mean I, especially because there's that scene where the Jimmy character meets with his mother who ends up trying to seduce the German scientist, but they're seated at that table and they have a contrast between they're at that table in this very fancy restaurant and Jimmy, because Jimmy's been up all night doing drugs and I think trying to rape people, um, (laughs) can't eat anything and the mother's like come on would you like something to eat? And he's like well i just can you give me some money and you can just tell like the mother wants there to be some kind of relationship between her and jimmy but jimmy f- probably feels like there can't be one because jimmy can't tell 
uh, their mother what what his life is really like. Like she lives in a different world. He can't be honest with her about what's going on in his life. So he can't be close to her. Yeah. Um, so there's this, <laughs> that, that, so, but they're at this very, very fancy restaurant. And then we see it's intercut with Margaret and her girlfriend at this like shitty diner. And um, they have apple pie and, and, her girlfriend's like apple pie. Why are we having apple? In it? And and Margaret's like, my mom used to make app five apple pies at once. Like so, it's really like Margaret's trying for some love and warmth to be between them, hmm. be- be- referencing her own mother, which no doubt she's estranged from. You know, because mm-hmm. she was from Connecticut and now mm-hmm. she's, you know, a, a fashion model and mm-hmm. living with a woman and, um, so. And she, the, her girlfriend is a total narcissist who is also a performance artist who can't, can't be present to her, you know, can't, can't really be warm and genuine with her. So it's, it's, you definitely get the idea that these people are, that they turn to drugs because they, it's a way of feeling something because they, they're too damaged to be present to each other and that I mean just think about what it was like to be queer yeah pre pre Ellen you know (laughs) and I I don't know I really don't know like it's it was hard I mean you were basically a lot of hate was directed at you a lot and and then we see Margaret in this world in this queer world still being hated by all these other queer people so it's hard in the interview, Ann Carlyle said that drugs was kind of a way to get close to people if you wanted to get close to them too. So it's a way to open doors and start conversations with people who are like you and create intimacy, I think, too. Like there's a That's interesting. Kind of commonality. Yeah. Like she said, it was. it's almost like it seemed like a kind of innocent thing to offer someone cocaine, um, which is totally I outside mean, I think, my like, experience. No, no, <laughs> no, I mean, that's funny. The way she describes it, I think, comes from more of her perspective. Yeah, I mean, because what I'm talking about, I'm putting that community in a bigger picture perspective of what was happening politically that they felt, you know, to the point where it's like the only time they could feel good and let their guards down would be with, you know, substance, substances. That was, you know, because they were had to keep so on guard all the time. Yeah, and to, like this movie reveals that level of hatred that is aimed at her. The, her existence as a queer woman is such a threat to all the straight men in her life that she's physically attacked. But also, them. also the gay men too. Mm-hmm. So, oh, gosh, there's so much. So, the, first of all, going back, that conversation with Jimmy, the addict, and his mother is one of the best scenes in the movie, like acting wise, because the glassy eyes between both of them, they're both choosing not to connect and keep the charade up and kind of go their separate ways. And then also that, that like long conversation, the monologue about the apple pie. I love that that was written by, co-written by a Russian man, right? Like I'm talking about apple pie in American culture. No, but I don't know. Maybe I don't know. I mean, we don't know which was, we, yeah, it might have been. Sometimes, though, when you have co-writers, sometimes people take parts of the script. Like, I wonder what they're... I, you probably know more about this because I haven't read um, any interviews about this movie. 
Um, I don't know if they had a process where one person wrote the first draft and someone did a pass, but but I could see that that almost felt like some weird memory of of. Uh, it kind of um, did. Maybe you're right. It felt like yeah, it could like, have been from her life because this is a lot of this is based on her life. She yeah. she said she her whole focus after leaving Connecticut was like being on the cutting edge and doing things differently. That's so she, interesting. Do you know what town in Connecticut? She I don't know. I don't really <laughs> see if she says so in the interview. No, she just says Connecticut. Yeah, it's almost like it's Connecticut's it's pretty overwhelming. I mean, just for your listeners who don't know Connecticut that well, I mean, it is a a bastion of conservatism. Mm. It's a very conservative, very proper place. Mm -hmm. um, it's probably the exact opposite of downtown New York, mm -hmm. especially at that time. So um, very Republican. It's where all the Bushes were from, despite what they say with the Texas bullshit. Excuse me, I guess it takes that you can take that word out <laughs> with the Texas stuff. But that's where the Bushes were from. And um, it has this history, even even during the, the Civil War, it was considered the Georgia of the North um, because it was so conservative. Um, so for her to come to from Connecticut, it's right. That's the most opposite place she could go to. And to live as an androgyne. That's what she said she called her, like lived as an androgyne. And people could, people watch this movie and walk away not knowing that Jimmy is not played by a different person. Yeah, That's, they think that, yeah. it's so incredible. It's also like the stagecraft of having that work is that like you often don't even notice that they aren't right. placed in that way. It's like that's like I think that's I'm coming out. I'm finally coming around to understand your point of view, which is it's really easy to write this movie off as low budget indie, whereas there's so much of like high quality screen craft that goes into making. I it. I can't so even shocking. imagine. I mean, this is before digital effects, so they there are shots where both of them are in the shot talking to each other. So that was quite a lot. I mean, they had to plan to do that. A lot of that in camera. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I don't, I didn't read anything about how they did that. It's just like that, that there's so many incredible effects in this movie. Now the good yeah. news is unlike a lot of uh, like indie films that I've had on this podcast, this movie was both a Bechtel test pass and a, a box office success. It ran hmm. for weeks and weeks. I mean, the first year it was out, it grossed 1.7 million and ran wow. for for multiple years as a midnight screening. So like, wow, I, it's you never see that. It's just such a relief. I was like, oh, like like this movie actually made money. Like, not only did it make its money back, this movie was very profitable from the indie perspective, which is so um, good to hear because what we've been talking about is like its role and its place in the timeline of queer cinema make it to me, I guess, much more um, radical at the time. Like I grew up in a time where, it, you know, in the nineties saying gay was like an insult. And then I was in middle school when the first like uh, states passed the right to gay marriage. Right. And I remember like, so I'm a little alive in that time. But that was where I started. And now kids in high school are um, the most recent things are like overwhelmingly majority queer, which is a really interesting state to be in where I think kids who wait, are wait, coming, kid, say that so again. more than 50% of high school kids that are that are um, like asked are queer. So like more than 50% oh, wow. of kids identify as queer now in modern high schools. Um, 
And I don't think... Wait, we, um, what's the source for that? I'll look it up because I'm just quoting stuff that might not be real. I mean, right? I remember I remember reading that because some people are like, oh, there are no lesbians anymore. And hearing that actually statistically more young people are coming out and, and identifying as it perhaps and it might not be that it's real it might be that kids are identifying that way as a solidarity thing i don't know or the main thing is it's it's like That's there's great. a much there's this thing there's this level of acceptance there's this sea change of acceptance but i don't think there's this understanding of how hard or how different it was like what i'm hearing from you is like nowadays it's different but we but to to, to be openly gay in the 80s required like you had to experience so much hate and i guess any time before that so much violence against you and your body that it's hard to even imagine now and right. i think this movie does a good job of capturing that because it's really painful to watch in some parts right, right. Like, but it's but it's since there's so much humor in it and there's mm -hmm. so much um true perspective it doesn't feel like you're watching like i've seen things i've seen stuff about hate crimes done by cisgender straight people and there's this weird kind of way in which it's when you're watching something that doesn't have the honesty of of reality and felt and lived experience it can feel itself like a hate crime you know what i mean um so i don't i think that even though you're saying it's painful because it's also entertaining it's not it's not like watching a after school special where you're learning about um brain cancer i don't know that, that's a bad example but it's it is a piece of cinema and it is a film so even as you absorb how people were treated and how they felt it's still entertaining and it's still highly enjoying and watchable. Yeah, and I was wrong. It's not majority. It's one in six. Okay, yeah. I guess I that sounds like, like wow, that's a majority to me. That's you're right. It does sure. No, but that's great. That's great. It's pretty crazy. So, um, I, I, there's so much good stuff. I would love to keep talking about you, but that we can't go on forever. I there's just so much that I can glean from this. What I can say is, please go find this film and the films of Madeline Olnick on whatever platforms um, yeah, work for you, you and learn if from you, them. You can, there's rental stuff on Amazon. There's, please watch Wild Mice with Emily on Hulu. There's, you can find them different places. And I hope you will look for them, but uh, please do support queer cinema. It's pretty great to have stories like it to me, not knowing anything about how this film was made, you telling me that Anne, Anne Carlisle was um, living as an androgynous person. Like there's, you can, the the feeling of this film is, is real, you know? Mm. And, and when there are laughs, they are earned laughs. They're not laughs at the expen expenses of people. They're laughs that you humor that you come to after you've been through all this <laughs> so there was a, there was one laugh at the synth soundtrack for me there were a couple times where the synth the soundtrack of the synth did get me giggling because there was some the synth is a little bit of um a little weird <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but my last question for you madeline is what can this movie teach us about making low budget sci-fi like what can we take away from this movie oh well i think 
what you take away from this movie is how true originality never dates. Like this movie is not, does not date itself. Whereas if you watched any mainstream queer movies like that were studio produced, a lot of those movies feel really dated in terms of the points they quote unquote struggle to make or whatever. Um, origin, true originality and true queerness, um, deeply felt thoughts and ideas last um, and make this movie such a treat after so many years in in the way to in the way that other multi-million dollar big budget movies made with queer content uh can't hold a candle to wow beautifully said uh you've been listening to they came from outer space i'm cameron kitt here with madeline olnick and uh i just want to say thank you so much madeline for coming on no thank you cameron it was great to be on the podcast are you afraid Because they're all dead. All my teachers. Liquid Sky.